Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 44. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com, joined by Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest this week is economist Patrick Perrett-Green. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello. Good morning. Patrick, for the benefit of the listeners, could you tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, well, firstly, I'm not an economist. I'm actually um, a historian by background. Oh, fantastic. Uh, uh, but I, I've basically had a sort of mixed career, both uh, most of it in trading or managing portfolios, uh, but also doing a lot of strategy. So I'm currently um, head of um, market research strategy for a boutique called Ad Macro. Uh, we, and uh, but before that, for example, I was head of strategy for Citibank in Asia for FX and rates, and and um, yeah, I, funny enough, when I was talking to Tim the other day, um, I, I, I was talking about economists, and I, was, I actually said to him that I think anybody anybody who has a, anybody with a PhD in economics should automatically be disqualified from sitting on the board or the monetary policy committee of any central bank. <laughs> So we tend to well. So we we see big picture, top down, and um, we try and then sort of focus on where we think um, the likely probabilities are, or actually where the most value is. Thinking where the probabilities aren't, what's underpriced, what most of the time things are in the price, and it's trying to do that sort of scenario type of environment. You know, what if, and sort of running through those sorts of things. And that's a, so. So it's a bit of a different approach to what your standard conventional investment bank will come up with, which is all very sort of um, um, mundane, really, and and very um, consensus as a whole. Patrick, do you think anybody really takes investment bank research seriously anymore? Uh, people who do it for a living. <laughs> um, I think. I mean, it's useful. There's you know, there's there's a certain amount of useful stuff out there. I mean, and we shouldn't be. So, I mean, there's some very good people out there and who I have an awful lot of time for. Uh, but there's an awful lot of stuff that is just um, really just rehashing. And, it, and it's almost like a glorified version of the FT, uh, which in itself is an indictment. Um, and um, but you know what I mean? It, it's 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 trying to we all know largely what's going on and, and the general consensus. The things that we don't, I know, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in, Run, in Rumsfeld's, you know, unknown unknowns. Um, because I think one of the, when we, we hear all these people talk about, you know, GFC, for example, and it was a, I don't know, one in like 3,000 year Sigma event or whatever they use for that. And of course, um, events like that actually are much more frequent than, um, than the um, sort of the traditional bell curve, so I, I, you know, we never know what's going to happen. Um, little, the, not so much the wing. I hate the friend, the wings of butterflies, but there are sort of the knock-on events of things that just, you know, the unintended consequences, and you end up with a series of unfortunate events. Uh, and I think that's actually where we are now in the world as well. So that sounds like you're referring to chaos theory in the batting of a wing in, in, you know, in some far off country causing a typhoon in it's somewhere else. It also sounds perhaps like you, you're an advocate of the, um, of, of Talib and the black swan. A little, a little bit. I mean, not, not sort of, you know, I think a lot of things are preventable as well. 
but I do think, for example, um, when we're talking about financial regulation, um, the, the regulators are always fighting the last war. So we've recapitalized the banks, and but you've effectively built the Maginot line. And the problem next time around is not going to be with the banks. It's um, probably there's a lot of also um, shadow lending is an area that has actually resurfaced um, across the board. Uh, we talk about China, but I mean in Western in the Western world, um, just one example of that would be um, how in the US, 50% of mortgage origination is done by non-banks now compared to 25%. Back in 2012, and that the banks, in terms of residential lending, um, as a proportion of their total loans, residential lending now is an all-time record low. Um, which, from a general perspective, residential lending, as long as done well, has always been one of the highest quality, one of the safest forms of lending, um, provided you don't get carried away with you know property booms and bust. And ironically, um, they've gone for. Commercial real estate is now a much bigger proportion of banks' balance sheets, and that's often where you do get your areas of boom, booms and bust. And you've got things like direct lending, such as hedge funds or other types of uh, investors, um, be it sort of private equity or whatever you want to call them, whoever they are, almost doing leverage direct lending. And plus, we've got this whole expansion of things like CLOs, uh, uh, an enormous erosion of covenant protect protection. And then from a more, and this is a global sense, of course, the, the big one of the big themes we have is the sheer aggregate am amount of debt. And well, we can talk about China, but actually I, you know, when the things that are closer to home are more likely to affect us. So when I look at the US um, and we have a situation where GDP um, debt in the US has, in just a couple of years has risen by $5 trillion, but GDP has only risen by about two, nominal GDP has risen by about two, two and a half. And we've got a another sort of fiscal experiment going on. The last time I can think of was when Gordon Brown tried it with his golden rule, um, where you have obviously this sort of peak cycle massive expansion of the of the budget deficit in the US. And when you actually look at the numbers, federal debt in the last fiscal year, and their fiscal year runs from October through to September, depending that you have the published deficit of like, you know, net securities borrowing, which is something like $780 billion, where then the US Treasury comes out and shows that total federal debt rose by $1.35 trillion because of the internal borrowing from things like the Social Security Fund. So federal debt went up by $1.35 trillion and 6.5% of GDP. And the most we've got is GDP growing at 3%. And against that background, you've also got a Federal Reserve, uh, which is not only raising interest rates, but also doing quantitative tightening. And to my mind, has arguably tightened too much already. So joining the dots there, you're basically saying that the the problem could be if there is a downturn and we'll, we'll discuss whether you think there's one coming uh, or we're in one at the moment, um, that there's too much debt and the risks could be with the shadow lenders, not necessarily with the main banks. Is, is, is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I don't think, I, you know, I think main, but banks are a non-story to, to, to all intents and purposes. Um, in, in the in the US, at least. 
Well, I know even you know, and probably perhaps in the UK where they're very well capitalised and they've cut down. If you look at the, the contraction of the balance sheets of, of people like um, RBS, for example, RBS when we go back to the peak of the boom when they bought ABN Amro, their balance sheet was two point two trillion pounds, one hundred and fifty percent of UK GDP. And they had a loan deposit ratio of around about 135, 140%. Now their balance sheet is down to 900 billion. There's very little of it is offshore. Is It's, it's largely UK related. Uh, their capital rate, um, weightings are very high in the high teens. And their loan deposit ratio is actually down to about 90%. So they've got, you know, they've, they've got ex, they've got excess funds relative to the amount of loans. And the US guess what I'm saying? Yeah, sorry, I just guess what I'm saying is it's, it seems more like it's it's the European banks that are the potential weak link in the chain here. Yeah, European banks, and that's obviously, you know, they've got these structural issues as well. Um, with the, you know, we have that fundamental problem of Europe, don't we? That we have they have a close union, but they don't have the backup of a, of a federal system. So we don't see those resources moved around. Um, so it doesn't matter if, if Oklahoma's in recession and California's doing well, there is some federal element that can come and bail it out. Whereas in Europe, obviously, we have Germany with a gargantuan current account surplus, which basically lent money to the rest of Europe to buy it off them. But there's no fiscal re- balancing out. So we have the, the you know, the I was going to say absurdity, but I don't think it's absurdity. It's I think it's a, a tragedy of an EU that says, "Well, we're going to stick by these rules, and we and we don't care that um, we've we've stuck Greece into a depre- de- um, deflationary depression, that we've um, significantly worsened mortality and raised poverty, or even in Italy where poverty has gone up enormously as well." So, I mean, it's, um, and then we have obviously that leads to the structural undermining of the, of the, of the credit structures of the, of the financial institutions involved in those economies. So, but it's, I mean, Europe is, it, it, I always say that the EU or the Euro is, is, is one big recession away from a, a structural uh, reforming or, or yeah reconstitution, whatever you want to call it. Um, but ultimately, you know, I, even that, even when you look at Europe, um, I sort of, I try and sort of take the, the you know, it's all, I call it the Jerry Maguire approach, show me the money. So just like in the, if you go back, it's the bizarre thing, if you go back to sort of 90, early 1990s, and the Japanese economy at that point had a GDP of, Five trillion against the U.S. GDP of seven trillion, and here we are, 25 years on. And the Japanese economy has got a, GDP, a nominal GDP of five trillion against the 21 trillion, and China obviously is up there with like 12 or 13. Um, so, when we're looking at things, generally focus on, you know, you've got to get the if you get the big things right, then everything else generally will will pass on through. So. I spend a disproportionate amount of time focusing on on the US and then China, and then we all trickle down through to all the other things. So I so I keep for me at the moment. I think the Chinese 
But one of the, I mean, I've lived and worked in Asia. And one of the things I'd always say about the Chinese, and I know you've got your Jim Chanosses and all this sort of stuff, and there's a lot of really good stuff out there about China and the debt buildup. But the one advantage about the Chinese is they, that they know what their problems are. And they are a self-contained, they, they have the luxury of being relatively self-contained economy. And with that, it gives them a greater freedom of movement. Whereas the US um, still doesn't know really know what its problems are, uh, does very little to address them. Uh, you have a Fed that is obsessed about the nominal level of interest rates rather than the relative shift in them. And more broadly, I, I, my big concern, and, I, and I, I, when I started talking about Japan, and actually before I was at Citibank, I used to work for a Japanese bank, uh, Mizuho, and we were very familiar with the concept of extremely low interest rates in QE. And I think one of the, one of the big things, and it's very subjective, because I said I'm not an economist, I don't sit there with great big models, is you get to a certain level of debt. Um, when debt becomes too large, an economy becomes hypersensitive to relatively small changes in interest rates. It's almost as if um, you've been out and you've had bad sunburn and you can never really, you've always got to be very careful going in the sun again. And I think that the Fed is sitting there thinking that, oh, rates are only two and a half, three percent 3%. But that's against the background of very large debt and um, and, a, and, a diff and, and no real solution about how to get, get, get around it. And we, and we just have to look at what's happening in the most interest rate sensitive parts of the economy already, where housing is coming to a thuddering um, halt or an enormous slowdown in activity uh, with new home sales, building permits, all off sort of 15, 20% um, from their highs of, of the first part of this year. And things like autos as well are also slowing. And it's this sensitivity to interest rates. Um, and one of the, in that theme is also the idea that when we've had such, we, we've previously had interest rate cycles. So we got used from rates going to three to six or back down and then up again to five. But what we've seen in the post-08 environment was a situation where rates stayed low for a very long period of time. And because it was so long, people made permanent shifts in their spending allocations. So when these changes come through, and proportionally, obviously, they're quite significant now because we're having rates on a mortgage rate. You're, well, the 30-year mortgage rate, for example, was averaging around about 3 0.5, 3.6%. Now it's up to 490. Whereas back in, so the proportional cost has gone up a lot. Whereas previously in sort of 2004, it never really went much below five. And by 2006, it didn't really go much over, much over 6%. Okay, you had a different factor in terms of bad lending and a, a speculative boom. But what I'm saying overall is that Proportionately, we've had a big change in rates, and as a percentage of people's income going forward, it's also had a big change. And while and and that's been against the background of <clears throat> low wage growth, and and going further than that, I also think an awful lot of the numbers we see in terms of 
average incomes in the US or personal disposable income are overstated because of this bifurcation of society and the the, the, the 1% or the top 5% have done much better over the past five years. But you have a situation in the US where 50% of the population, if they're lucky, earns $30,000 a year, 25% of the population is unable to take a $400, is unable to deal with a $400 hit to their circumstances. Um, so uh, it, it's a, there's a, statistics conceal um, a great deal about the frailties of the US economy as well. Um, I was I was struck, uh, Patrick, by one of your recent notes, I think you sent this morning, where you said nearly 30% of white males in the US over the age of 20 aren't even in the labor market. <clears throat> And that's just staggering. So yes, I'm in markets, but uh, you know this this social side of things is is really quite staggering. And we can talk about criminalization of people or opioids um, and that partial effect. But it, it, you know, it's not a new subject. I mean, it's, it's coming up quite a lot. But um, and it, it is a you know we can talk about it on an empirical basis. But so what we've seen in sort of participation rates. In the U.S. in particular, they've generally fallen since 2008, which is rather, you know, and the Fed says, oh, it's part of an aging population. Except when you look at Germany, South Korea, Japan, all of which have rapidly aging populations, and their participation rates have done nothing but gone up over the past 10 years. Um, I, think, I think I think Paul may have been expecting some good news out of this uh, podcast today, so I think Paul's um, going to be well, bit, bitterly disappointed. No, 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 I'm not bothered. No, <laughs> it's, it's, tell it as well, it is. It's a structural issue, but it is actually quite staggering. That so I was going through all the numbers, and, and you know, you sort of female employment, uh, Hispanic, black. They're all those categories. The, 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 the Bureau of Labor Statistics publishes all those categories, but it is absolutely staggering that the labor force participation rate. So for all the talk about a tight labor market and strong employment growth, that the participation rate for white males over the age of twenty is now down to 71.5%. Um, is actually at its lowest point. So in spite of the employment growth over the past few years, it has actually continued to keep falling. Uh, and it's just a basic, simple back-of-the-envelope calculation. But if the US participation rate had even remained, had recovered to where it was in, in 2007, which would actually be still be worse than pretty much most, you know, all the the, the you know, Germany, South Korea, Japan, and, and particularly the UK, then your unemployment rate in the US would not be 3.7%, but it would be closer to 7%. So you have this huge pool of underutilized labor that almost seems to have bailed out. Now, is it on Medicare? Is it on, um, I don't know, just, I don't know, gig economy, but it's hard to... You, know, you would have thought that that should still be reflected in the labor stats to some extent because get a lot of okay not everyone's working on their own they, if they're working for you know an uber or amazon or whatever they're still down as recorded as a worker through some statistical database but the dramatic drop is that it, it's it's very concerning it shows uh and it's and it's concerning, you know. It, it shows a huge loss of productive potential. It raises some really serious questions about social divisions, um, and 
you know, and ultimately, it you know you get lots of angry white men, um, which is reflected in populist votes. One just has to look at what happened with the midterms uh, and the proportions of non-college-educated males. Um, I think Trump's getting sort of like 60% of their vote, um, if not more. Um, and even non-college-educated females, he's getting the, the majority share of their vote. Whereas when you comes to skilled college-educated, for it doesn't, you know, I don't talk about. I'm not going to talk about the merits of people's politics, um, but you're seeing these divisions become ever more entrenched. And obviously, it's not a phenomenon that's that's unique to the to the US. We we hear these stories about you know in the for example in the UK as well about how mortality is peaking out, and actually the people who are doing worse all seem to be suffering the, the biggest reversals in um, wealth and health are sort of middle-aged white men. So that's a risk that you've you've identified in the, in the economy. Um, yeah. What sort of opportunity for investment or disinvestment would you would would that raise for you how would how would that play out in an investment strategy i mean just to add to that that would tend to suggest what you've alluded to patrick is is very modest wage price pressures yeah i think that still stays with us because of the differentiation of skills one would all go i mean you know without being completely cynical one would almost say invest in prisons um and it's you know, going the other way around, <clears throat> actually, education, um, employment training, because um, I think that's an area that governments are going to have to address. I mean, they they fanny around like in the UK with the, the apprentice scheme, which hasn't really worked, and maybe <clears throat> maybe there needs to be a bit more of a radical rethink. Um, you know, I grew up in the eighties, so, you know, and I can remember. Or was it the Youth Opportunity Scheme? But actually, I know loads of people who did that thing, sort of thing, where you got like 40 quid a week in those days and you could try start starting your own business. And, you know, it was, it was better than getting the doll. And, and it actually it did it encouraged people to get up and do something. Um, well, that was just a minor thing. I mean, it, but it's, it's this, the problem is, of course, what we're talking about, it's these levels of underemployment or poverty and ill health are happening, have happened at a time when the world economy has been recovering and growing, which really raises some rather worrying questions about what's going to happen if things do roll over and growth flatlines, which I think is probably more of the, the probability rather than necessarily cataclysmic recession I, I think it could be much more um, sort of Japanese like that things just slow and uh, you know when I look at the US and I keep on coming back to it but we're already seeing through the whole tariff issue has is had a major dampening impact there are other factors as well for certain countries but the tariff issue has had a major effect on corporate confidence uh, it's affecting investment decisions. It's disrupting trade flows. And when I look around the world, so we're talking about the US, but Taiwan is what one would call global trade 
intermediary central, you know, those supply chains and all that sort of stuff. And their PMI has dropped to 48.7. And it's the first time it's been below that since about you know, 2015, 2016, when risk was in a very bad way and we just had the, the China deval. Um, I just was reading the, the paper this morning and I see that um, in Korea, uh, the, they've just, the, the president's just sacked the finance minister because they're having, you know, and this is a country that a month ago everyone was talking about they're going to hike, they're going to raise interest rates, and you've seen a complete U-turn. Now they're talking about more stimulus, and then we've got places like, and then in the U, and my concern about the U.S. is we could be at a similar tipping point. So when we look at the GDP numbers we had for the third quarter in the U.S., ostensibly the headline's great, three and a half percent annualized. The only problem was within that, within that three and a half percent, yes, consumer spending, spending was strong, but investment had slowed to zi almost zero. And two percent of that three and a half percent, because trade was a big negative, two percent of that, of the plus number, came from the building inventories. Well, inventories build up, but ultimately they have to be brought down. So they're, they're almost, if that's activity brought forward, um, so I can see a situation where growth in, as a fiscal, and, and of course, the other thing that's really boosted GDP has been government expenditure. But unfortunately, the biggest beneficiary of gov increased government expenditure has been the military. And while defence is important, et cetera, if, if an awful lot of that money is just going into sort of advanced fighters and bombers and missiles or frigates or whatever they don't really you know it's all very well when you build them but they don't really have an awful lot of that well they have zero um, um value when it comes to boosting the productive potential of a country it's not like you've built a road or a bridge um so you get that you know it's a it's equivalent of what we talk about with japan like the road the roads to nowhere or you know the air the, you know these sort of Airports that are just built and they're falling to disrepair. They, they have a short. Sorry to interrupt. I was I was struck by a piece in um, the FT by Julian Tett, who over the weekend, who's one of the few FT writers I'm actually willing to read now, actually able to read. And it pointed out that the U.S. government is now paying 1.4 billion dollars a day to service its debt, which is 10 times more than any other country in the G7. Um, do you, what's your uh, take number, on, on U.S. Does, rates? Well, that number does sound slightly high for now. Because um, there's a there's a whole load of net payments and stuff. So the gross amount of interest they paid last year was something. Yeah, actually, it's not far off it because it was 560 billion they paid, and it's going up. So the 1.4 trillion a day actually is about right. Really, billion a day is about right. Uh, there's a net number which is lower because there's again you have these intra-governmental payments. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're sitting there with, and depending on, you know, there's the publicly owned debt and there's the total federal debt. So the total federal debt now today is, uh, just looking at it, something like 21.6 trillion. Um, and that's forecast to grow by another trillion, at least. Uh, I mean, well, that, no, the debt, the actual, hang on, no, I just got up in front of me in my blue book. As of uh, as of Friday or Thursday, total public debt was twenty one trillion seven hundred thirty three billion, and 
Whereas at the end of September, it was 20, it's actually just the Treasury's own numbers. At the end of September, total public federal debt was 21 trillion 500. Well, here we go. What is it? Just get the numbers. Something like 516. So we've actually just, in the space of the past six weeks, the numbers have got actually gone up by by 200 billion. These these figures no longer mean anything. I was going to say exactly that. It's just you get to the point where it it's like the talking about the universe and how big it is. It just gets to the point where you think, well, what does this mean anymore? But but ultimately it becomes this sort of Ponzi, you know, Ponzi economics, doesn't it? Because oh, I'm borrowing it, and well, who's who's actually lending you the money for a start? We know this is another thing. So we have I have sort of two big things. One is about debt. Uh, and the other one is now. I mean, it will appeal. I'm, I, I don't pretend to know anything about crypto. I remain a deep crypto skeptic. I think it's a, it's a world full of fraud, and people using computers who are far clever, you know, able to manipulate stuff. So I'll leave crypto for now. But in a world where you have a that noise you hear, by the way, is Paul's balloon just deflating. <laughs> it's really, it's really not. Uh, I, 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 think. I do have a, you know, <laughs> there is this issue about uh, the, not the death of the dollar, but um, you know, it, it, the, the whole uh, exorbitant of privilege. That was um, Giscard d'Estaing came up with that in the late sixties when he was um, De Gaulle's finance minister. But the exorbitant privilege. But we're at a stage now uh, when one looks at, um, for example, the, sh- the, the, do- the dollar's share of official FX reserves. It's now back down to it, it's down to lows um, that we haven't, it, uh, and it's going lower. And there's a reluctance on the part of other countries to buy to hold dollars anymore. So what we're seeing is a gradual, and, and, and this is being exacerbated by the weaponization of the dollar by the Trump administration. So sanctions here, sanctions there. Well, how do we get around it? Well, we just don't use the dollar. So, for example, Russia and India have just done this big arms deal. It's all going to be tr- done in um, rupees or rubles. Uh, Russia and China are... are, are Doing more and more stuff, and eventually, I think they'll move to a, a buy. You know, China buys most of its energy from Russia. All the incremental increase in in, in carbon fuel, be it oil or gas, seems to be coming from Russia primarily, um, and they're cementing their ties. Um, I think at some point um, they might just sort of end up with a sort of a ledger system that is backed by gold because they're both massive holders of, of gold. And <clears throat> even in that vein, when one looks at the creation of the oil contract in Shanghai now, that was only introduced of March of this year, uh, and is now trading at doing 300, 350,000 contracts a day, same specifications as those for Brent and WTI, but Brent only does 200,000 a day, um, WTI is about 300, 650. But again, the Chinese are now, and I take it, you know, it's physical delivery, denominated in Chinese renminbi. And you can be 
you can have gold contracts delivered against it. Um, and we also, and in that vein as well, when we look at FX reserves, the the one country for all its problems that saw its share of international FX reserves rise in the second quarter of this year was China, and that primarily came to under to you know from my my in my opinion. But when one looks where where the shifts were, basically Russia sold off the great bulk of its U.S. Treasury portfolio, sold off about eighty billion dollars of Treasuries in the second quarter, and official holdings of Chinese yuan went up by $50 billion in the second quarter. I guess what I'm, I'm taking from this is you, are, you do not sound like a secular bull of the dollar. Well, you know, the dollar, the, the, the US, for all this stuff about, you know, we talk about a dollar shortage and EM count, 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 countries that have borrowed dollars or whatever. Actually, when you look at the BIS stats, EM countries have been very circumspect increased. They, you know, over the past four years, their, their dollar borrowings have, uh, have remained very flat and they've continued to build up their FX reserves. So the ratio of EM FX reserves relative to um, bank claims is actually improved. Whereas the US, US foreign debt has gone up by, has, more, has doubled since 2008. Um, it's now up to about 20% of, uh, of GDP, so it's gone up to about $4 trillion. The corporate sector has gorged at the trough in the era of low rates. Um, so corporate debt in the US is now a record percentage of GDP, higher than it was in 07. It's about 47%. That's his official numbers, so that's, not, that's, that's the official numbers. So obviously, if one could get the real shadow numbers increased, you'd say that was even greater. And uh, unfortunately, uh, and, and you put that in numerical terms, uh, it's basically that that increase in the corporate debt is basically three trillion. Uh, um, it's roughly sort of nine, ten trillion. So they've increased their borrowings by uh, at least three trillion US dollars over the past since the, the sort of the ba it based out in sort of 2011, 12. And unfortunately. Um, most of that borrowing has gone into dividends and buybacks. It hasn't gone into investment. So the corporate sector's levered up. The foreign debt has levered up as well. And of course, the government has levered up. The only people who haven't really increased their borrowings have been households. <clears throat> and a large part, you know, one of the reasons they delevered was actually um, just simply came through default in housing. Um, in the immediate post-GFC period, uh, but they have started to re-lever up more recently. But as a percentage of income, household debt is a much smaller percentage, percentage of income or, and of GDP than it was previously. So next time around, I'm not overly worried about households. Um, I think they, they, many of them are still stuck with the scars of, uh, of 2008-2009. But governments and corporates haven't, and I, you know. So my big concerns is when I'm talking to investors as a whole is, a general for the multi-asset portfolio managers, for example. My my advice has been, uh, be cautious in credit, um, stick with high quality. You really need to do your homework now, and look at companies which have. Uh, not really address debt or increase their debt over the past few years uh, because 
we are at the peak of the cycle and not only that the cost of carry is also increasing so and i and the way i one of the ways i sort of look at that is that when you look at most corporate debt tends to have an average life of about five or six years so if you think about it borrowing really based out in 2012 it really gathered pace over the next four or five years when rates were all very very low but as time goes on that cost of the borrowing has gone up so ig which is the high you know investment grade is now about 150 basis points higher than it was in terms of yield and the problem is one's going to be refinancing that over 2019, 2020, 21, 22. So the financing costs in themselves are going to be that much greater. And it comes back to the the old Warren Buffett, isn't it? You, know, uh, you only see who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. Um, and unfortunately, that also brings me to the federal government because they have been borrowing at a rate of knots. I think that it, for once in my career, um, the sheer volume of debt combined with the unwind of the Fed's balance sheet, which adds another 50, adds another 50 billion of supply a month, were actually, is actually one of the reasons why uh, longer-dated longer yields are, have remained under pressure. But ultimately, that generally tightens financial conditions for all. And you're also just getting you – know, foreigners don't really want to buy, borrow, buy any more um, – U.S. Treasuries, so the Chinese may sit there, or the Japanese may sit there with the same, with a similar sort of dollar-denominated number, but they're not actually increasing their holdings of Treasuries anymore. So there'll be rollover demand, but net new demand from foreign investors for U.S. Treasuries is is, is lower. Just at a time when the deficit is expanding, and you've got QT, so rates go up, rates go up, lagged effect, economy flops. From what you've yeah. said, that's potentially quite. That, that that foresees potentially quite a dark outlook, not just for for government debt and for credit, but also but also for the more tapped out corporate borrowers, actually for equity as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, one can talk about relative value about if if one's along an only portfolio manager, but if everything is going down, it's just quite his mind going down less than anybody else's. Uh, and if one can't be short, if, if, if one can be short, and, and obviously th that's a different sort of game entirely, or take have different sorts of trade. But I mean, ultimately, the long-term destination for me is that we end up with a situation that the Fed uh, over tightens, probably ha possibly has already. One, one of the things I'm trying to, I try and get across to people is because the Fed seems obsessed with absolute level of rates, which I mentioned earlier on. And they sort of ignore the fact that when we think about previous cycles, so let's say. In 2000, rates were 6.5%. We had 9-11, Gulf War Two. Rates actually went too low. They got down to 1%, a low of 1%. They eventually went back up to five and a quarter. But what we saw in 2007, 2008, 9, was that we had a Fed funds at five and a quarter. But, well, the Fed funds themselves got down to zero. The, the real Fed funds rates, because of all the... <laughs> The, the boost from QE, et cetera, was probably more like minus 2.5%. So if you think about that minus 2.5%, as you would have thought about the previous low, like the 1%, so that's peak accommodation. And similarly, well, we've gone from minus 2.5% now to, well, market rates, a three-month T-bill is something like 260 to something like that. 
So we've had a fight. We've had 500 basis points from the low of the right rate cycle to where we are now. And so we've had a, we've in that context, in that sense, we've had a full tightening cycle. Um, actually, larger than most tightening cycles. And the problem is, the Fed sits there and talks about well, the, the, the effects are lagged. Well, we know well, yeah. So we've already seen effects in the mortgage market in mortgages. So, for example, mortgage rates have widened against U.S. Treasuries by sort of fifty to sixty basis points over the past year. Not for any sort of worsening of credit the defaults of actually at their lows and all this sort of stuff, but you have had the Federal Reserve sell reduce its mortgage portfolio by a hundred billion dollars. Um, and that was just in the year from 1st of October 17 to 30th of September this year. Now with QT, they're now doing 20 billion of MBS a month as the, as that's its share of the 50 billion of QT. So between the 1st of October this year and the end of next year, if they stick to plan, they will have done another 300 billion of MBS. So it's basically selling this credit that will continue to widen mortgage mortgage rates. So even if bonds don't do anything here, the actual mortgage rate is likely to widen quite significantly further. And in a market where we're already seeing mortgage applications down to all-time record lows relative to population, um, the numbers in the past week or so have just been, well, they've been on a steady downtrend. And... You know, that also, you, you apply for your mortgage before you put your bid in on a house or, or your actual move. So it, it also suggests that activity of the, over the coming quarters is going to be slower, certainly on that consumer side of things. So we're in a situation where um, I can see a US economy that's topping out. The fiscal stimulus fades as we get into next year, as we get into the, the turn of the year. Growth falls. Uh, inflation also is likely to fall. Um, there's a very strong relationship between oil prices and U.S. headline CPI. Um, it wouldn't surprise me at all to see U.S. CPI in the first quarter of next year be down to so closer to one and a half percent. And at which point, I think you know the Fed will raise rates in December this year, from largely, unfortunately, because of Trump's noises about the Fed. But then, by the time we're into the second, late first quarter, early second quarter, we're going to seriously be talking about them coming to a halt. We'll see how growth is going globally, but actually, at the very least, the Fed should be coming to a halt in them, and we could see U.S. rates fall. And that should actually, that will actually benefit things like EM, and obviously it will weaken the dollar. So you can have sort of not everything will be crappy. Um, but I'd also say when it comes to Sino-US relations, and this is this is the, probably my third big theme. So I have debt, the abuse of privilege on a dollar, and the other one is Sino-US relations. And this is what, for the historian, is the really interesting thing, because it's not about trade. The US has always perceived itself as a Pacific power, and... It, it, it's not. It's never. It's never been the Atlantic power. It, yes, it helped out in World War Two, World War One, and World War Two, but it sees the Pacific as it as its natural domain. The the rivalry, the strategic rivalry between China and the U.S. is 
significant when we look at I, I thought the uh, Wang Shan speech the other week in uh, the Bloomberg had this economic forum in Singapore. And he actually, you know, this is the vice president comes out and he's the he's the economics guru, and he actually talks about 1840 in China, that you know when China was occupied by all the colonial powers, including the Americans. Um, and that China really feels it's it's not given the recognition it should be at the international table, and it's a, this is two this is two powers butting heads, and you can talk about Germany and the and the United and, and Britain in the late nineteenth century um, is probably one of the most similar environments. Um, but even on another sales scale, you could talk about uh, the rise of Japan in the 1930s in the Pacific and the U.S.'s efforts to stop that, to handicap it. Um, and so we have two big powers, both of whom are pretty stubborn. I'm like, is it going to get to a war situation? I doubt. I, I'm not that pessimistic. But what I'm saying is that there is a permanent – there is – increasingly the signs of an economic cold war and so trump comes out and you see oh china's not going back to 2025 well no they may not be going on about it anymore because they realized it wasn't doing them any favors and it was aggravating the situation but china 2025 is still absolutely the aim and the ambition of the regime they are moving up the value chain one just has to look how they've moved where they've moved in the past decade, and they're going to continue to do so. And this this strategic rivalry is not going to go away. There's going to be an underlying current of tensions, um, and that is, you know, it's another form of tension. Um, so, and in fact, you know, game theorying it, and this is what I put in my latest piece as well. If I was President Xi, there's everything. You know, there's a lot of things to say. I shouldn't come up with a trade deal with Trump by the end of this year. Let him go ahead with the tariffs, because actually what's happening with my exports, well, we're, yeah, it's not so good with the US, but globally we're doing fine. And also, if I if I can get the S&P down another 10%, we know full well that Donald will be squealing. You know, there he was at the beginning of October going, hey, look at us, S&Ps at record highs, record equity valuations. Four weeks later, you've lost three hundred, three and a half trillion of market cap, and he's suddenly coming out and saying, "Hey, just had a great call with President Xi." He's done a great job, hasn't he, of like taking credit for the for the rally, but then now politically putting it on the Fed if the market goes down. So it looks like it's got nothing to do with him. Yeah, yeah, and he goes very quiet about it. But another ten percent off, and he'll be very uncomfortable. Um, yeah, you know, it doesn't matter what he says. The fact is, he'll be very uncomfortable because it's not even that. It will actually, correspondingly, one only has to look at small business confidence against things like the Russell 2000, yeah. and it's the same chart. Unsurprising, you know, I'm, I'm a, I own small businesses. My stock, my, you know, I'm generally wealthy. I've got a big equity portfolio. My equity portfolio has surged. I feel pretty good about life. It. And you're going to get the opposite wealth effect. So, I mean, the, the, for the Chi Chinese, actually, don't give a damn about their own stock market. Most of it is actually held by government, by state-owned. You know, it's loads of cross shareholdings. 
So state SOEs own shares in China banks or stuff like that or whatever. The actual market cap is Chinese market cap about five trillion US against the GDP of 12, 13 trillion. US market cap at the peak was 33 trillion versus the GDP of 20. Makes China sound very cheap. Well, it does in that context. Um, but it's the other side of it is if you think of it in the context of, you know, I don't have elections um, in China. And so, but I do in the US or you do in the US and you also care about your stock market. They basically know how to put the squeeze on. It's certainly what I would be doing myself would be if I was Chinese. Uh, I, I would not be unhappy to see the S&P off another, another 10%. And, uh, you, mentioned, the, uh, you mentioned, sorry to interrupt, uh, Patrick, you mentioned uh, poor, uh, China looking cheap, but I suppose it depends on what, what you think about corporate governance. I'm, I'm minded to recall a, a chat I had with a Hong Kong manager a couple of years ago, and he said, if there are 1.3 billion people in China, you can assume that at least a billion of them are crooks. <laughs> I mean, I, I think one of the, well, China is cheap because of, for a reason. You know, the governance is very limited. Um and, and but overall, you know, there's clearly value in there. I think it's it's. I don't pretend to be any expert on Chinese equities, uh, but if the economy continues to sort of trundle along, and I, you know, it was, they know full well that growth has to slow. Your population's slightly aging. You can't keep on. You know, they are having this sort of deliberate sort of deleverage system or trying to stop credit growing at such a fast rate and sort of managing that rate so taking stuff from shadow banking letting some defaults happen making sure that lending going forward is more directed and controlled and i can you know we all know that things can wobble but they also have a very you know they are a creditor nation they have a great pool of private savings and, and and that comes back to it. You know, so are Chinese equities relatively cheap? Yes, they are. I mean, EM equities are cheap on most bases. And again, I, the one thing I would say, and, and I, when I talk about EM, I generally tend to focus on Asia um, because they are, Asia as a whole is is better run, has current account surpluses, has high saving. Has, you know, it's a cultural thing as well. There's an emphasis on education and training and saving. And there's this relentless hunger, and you can see that everywhere, um, and a will to get things done, which is obviously contrasts hugely with the US or and even and some other EM countries as well. As well, let's not be, let's not let's not blow smoke up their backsides. But it also um, it also contrasts with with Europe. Um, just to change tack a little bit. Yeah, sure. Um, as I think you may have seen, there's a report in the Sunday Times this morning that uh, Graham Brady, the chairman of the 1922 Backbench Committee, has been accused of suppressing the fact that he's already received enough letters to trigger a vote of no confidence in Theresa mm. May. Yeah. Um, quite honestly, um, I, I was I was actually chatting with this before the Joe Johnson resignation. Um, I, I was chatting uh, with my boss on Friday morning, and I said I, I think we could see the 48 coming out. Um, such has been the ineptitude of the government um, in terms of negotiations. Um, 
and a wasted opportunity. Um, and the very fact that I mean, I mean, if one, you know, I suppose one, if you say one thing, at least to one, one achievement Theresa May has had is that she's pretty much managed to piss off everybody. Um, and it's you know when you get okay, Joe Johnson's a Remainer, Boris is a Brexiteer. They're both gone, but the fact is, I, mean, I think it's very damaging. I wouldn't be surprised about the if the, the, the forty-eight letters are there. Um, but that's easy. You know, the reality is that's easy enough to do. They've got all these WhatsApp groups, your ERG boys and all this sort of stuff. And basically all you do is get a quick head count and go around and say, okay, have you put a letter in or not? Because let's not forget the 1920, there's, there's about a hundred members of the Conservative Party are actually members of the government in various forms. In fact, it's been one of the ways of, that Theresa May has tried to neuter things. So when you look at recent events, like she's put, made something like 15 people deputy chairman of the Tory party to try and bring them into the government under the auspice of government rather than be a backbencher. So there isn't actually a great number of backbenchers out there. Uh, was a parliamentary party of what, 215 or whatever, 200 and something like that. And um, 315. So take off those in government, you're left with a pod of about 200 MPs. Should be fairly easy to work out who amongst those has actually put in the motions. But I think she's close. I wouldn't be surprised at all. Maybe that will concentrate the minds of the EU because if she go, I mean, the reality is, cabinet. We saw it. Cabinet um, takes out prime ministers. We saw it with Margaret. We've seen it before. And it, <clears throat> and there's a little subtext here. Is when I mean, Joe Johnson talked about the Suez crisis. That was exa- you know that was a very subtle dig because what happened with Suez is basically Eden left government was forced out the Macmillan took over that is a deliberate that mention of Suez in my mind was a very a subtle but a very deliberate suggestion that it's time for her to go Paul Paul are you still there I am yes yes I was I was uh, I was just observing a moment of silence for the 11 11 um Hundred years for the war, yeah. so yeah, yeah, it's um, it is. I mean, it's so it's, it's sobering stuff. It's really sobering stuff. Yeah, it is. It is, and um, you know, I, I, as again, I, I come back and I talk about this as a historian, and I'm saying, here we are. We're going like, oh, okay. Well, most of our trade is fifty-five percent of our physical trade is done with um, WTO rules. These controls are already in place. The system functions. Um, so going on about EU controls and all this sort of stuff is allow is 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 fear mongering for a start in an era of modern technology. And also when we're talking about pausing for thought, um, you know, there's lots of similarities of Theresa coming back with checkers, you know, and Chamberlain waving the piece of paper. I don't think it's not right. But also, I also say um, that do not underestimate the potential for the UK economy to actually mobilise itself should it actually feel the need to do so. Um, it's you know, A lot of stuff can be done. The fund, a lot of money has gone into place. And... My, my boycott of French wine has only just got started. <laughs> and <laughs> they felt I, it. I they felt you, it already. I can too. tell you this: I do actually, I, I, I do actually know uh, 
a cabinet minister um, who's reasonably senior. And from the outset, and I saw him a week ago, and he remained nameless, but um, he, 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 he said to me the other week, he said, from the very beginning, I've given it, I've been 60, 40 percent chance of no deal. And that 60 has gone up now, hasn't it? Well, I think I think very few people have been, you know, everyone's been largely of the idea that there will be some sort of deal and there may not, you know, more like 75, 25 in, in, in terms of a prospect for a deal. But his 60, 40 for no deal is looking ever more realistic. And the clock is ticking. The reality is here we are. It's the 11th of November. So what do we have left? We've got 20 days left in November, 31, 51, 29, 80, February's... 29, 28, 108. We have 139 days before the UK leaves the EU. And that's happening. We leave the European Union in 139 days. That is already set in stone. That is a statute. That has been passed in the... In and, we should have a, and we should have a moment's uh, silence to, to, to appreciate Gina Miller for driving that through. <laughs> it couldn't I have happened like, without her. Well, honestly, I just like a moment's silence from Gina Miller. <laughs> Um, you know, I mean, let's let's not forget about being financed by hedge fund, um, some sector like that. But, but no, I think you know that's another disruptive factor. When we've got all the, uh, the problem is, and this is the problem, I look at things. So we've got these issues with the states. We've got the issues with China. Uh, we've got Brexit. We've got Italy, um, and it's like okay. On the other hand, it's nearly Christmas. So, it's yeah. nearly Christmas, but, but you know. But this is these all these big issues, and and and, and then behind all of these factors, this, behind all the politics, we're still dealing with these monumental. So even when we talk about debt today, we're still talking about these monumental issues of demographics, aging populations, and unfounded liabilities uh, for those aging populations, and so. And this has always been my concern about the the 2008 period, is that, yes, the economy's recovered, but we never recovered like we did previously. I mean, some, uh, you know, we, this increase of debt is, is, when we look at previous recessions and bounces, this increase in debt is pretty, and central bank buying of debt, you know, increase in central bank balance sheets has been unprecedented. But the problem is, it didn't really, I mean, okay, we didn't really allow the bust to happen, the clearing out to happen. Uh, look at the BIS's latest uh, quarterly review. There's a big piece in there about the rise of zombie companies and the hype, how many zombie companies there are still out there relative to previous periods. So it, it's like you haven't, you know, you haven't cut away the, the rotting flesh, for want of a better description. Um, we haven't had that. And so correspondingly, the recovery has not been as great. But we're also hitting a point that as we enter the, the 2020s, that the baby boomers aren't going to be babies anymore. Um, and so you're, you, you're sort of, you know, you, you had a car crash. You went into a tree. By my most rights, you should have been dead, but because of newfound technology and read for that central bank techniques or efforts you were able to recover you were in intensive care but you've never truly recovered you're never going to run the 100 meters again 
you've got a permanent limp. But unfortunately, you're also aging now. And so you're just, I just struggle to ask, where's the momentum going to come from? What's going to set us on the next growth path, especially with this high, this enormous amount of debt weighing us down? And ultimately, there's two ways that I can only see the longer term that's being dealt with. One is in terms of the US, they'll slash rates again, we'll have QE again. But also, why don't we, we should end up getting, we'll probably end up with a, not, you could call it default, but um, again, I've you know, sort of wind up on a historical notice that the term, we're talking about the 100th anniversary, we talk about jubilees with the Queen, but the original jubilees came from Mesopotamian times when you'd actually have a debt jubilee and debts would be written off. Well, the way that central banks are at the moment, Bank of Japan owns pretty much half of Japan's government debt. It's never going to pay it back. So why not just, they could have ostensibly come out and say, okay, we'll give you a zero interest rate perpetual loan. Or we might as well just write the whole thing off. But at some point, I think that's going to be the next step. Not for today, but um, government's just going, well, here we are, cancel the debt. Um, which raises some another more interesting questions down the line. So they could then just start borrowing again, I guess. Well, if if Japan suddenly Bank of Japan suddenly cancels all the Japan all the debt its own, then Japan's GDP ratio <laughs> debt to GDP looks great. Collapses. And everyone goes, well, okay, what's wrong with that then? Um, yeah. And but yes, but ultimately, then you come back to uh, manner to or music to. Um, the ears of many is that, well, if that's going to be the way that fiat money is treated, um, you know, give me some, send me something that's not fiat, that is yeah, hard, hard real assets. Hard real assets. And it doesn't really matter what it is. Is it a business? Is it land? Is it a farm? Is it gold? Is it, um, but it's something tangible. So it can't be that, printed on demand. Yeah. Yeah, well, actually, one of the things I'm, you know, why, why do governments want to get cash? They love us going all digital, because then they can, then they can, if we go cashless, then they can take rates to sort of minus whatever they want to. We'll just charge you for having your, your money in your account easily. Until, until the Molotov cocktails start flying. Well, which brings us back to that um 28.5% of white males under over the age of 20 in the US not working and i, I, I actually i must admit i must admit i was quite looking forward to this this chat and now now i think i'm going out for lunch and i may be some time <laughs> <laughs> but tim that's 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 there's nothing unusual about that though hey that's true that that is true yes but um you know i mean it is I, I, you know i, I we've had the, rec- the reality is we've had the recovery and i think it's been about as good as it gets um, but looking ahead, it, we're clearly at more challenging times and it's one, you know, what's the, what's the phrase? Walk softly, but carry a big stick. Wow. Yeah. Words indeed. Um, Patrick, if people wanted to get in contact with you and if they wanted to sort of sign up to your newsletter is that possible How, well we don't well uh, we don't we don't so much do a newsletter we do put I, what i do to put out is periodic examples of work on bloomberg uh because basically what we deal with is a uh, a pool of clients 
who, um, you know, really still was less than, well, in terms of businesses, probably about only about uh, 20 businesses that we actually deal with. And so we, we have a business relationship where it's either, it's purely for the research um, and, but it's, and we do, you know, we actually have a business where we actually trade with people as well. We execute stuff for people, but um, yeah, I mean, more broadly, people can find me on Bloomberg easily and they're on LinkedIn. Uh, uh, I'm always willing to have a, have a chat with people and uh, see if we've got mutual areas of benefit. Obviously, if, you know, same time, it's squeezing everything into uh, the day. But uh, yes, you, the best way to, is probably Bloomberg or LinkedIn. Is the way the best way to get hold of me. Right. So, you, so you're not on Twitter or anything like that. I am on Twitter, uh, PPG Bytes. Okay. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I'm on that as well. We can put all this in the show notes when we uh, upload it. Should we go? I, 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 I'm, I'm in st- respectful but stunned silence after <laughs> after the last hour. Yeah. Uh, that's so, so sobering stuff. Thank you. Um, let's go. Let's go straight for media, shall we? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We haven't actually explained to Patrick about this, as usual. I think I've I've alluded to it, so Patrick may or may not be prepared for this. All right, okay. Sure. So, Tim, why don't you go first? I'll I'll go first. I was was going to go with three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, which is tremendous apart from the last five minutes, uh, where where the ending is... uh, I found deeply troubling. But actually, last night we came across uh, or something that, that my, my better half had recorded on TiVo. So we we're watching a thing called um, the Gladbeck hostage crisis, which is something I'd never heard of before. I was, I was at college in 1988, and because that was a pre-internet age and there weren't that many tellies around, never got to hear about this one. But it's, it's the Gladbeck hostage crisis, uh, which we're watching on uh, BBC Four. It's available on BBC Four for another two months, so people have got plenty of time in the UK, at least, to watch it. Utterly unbelievable. Uh, have you heard of this, uh, Paul? No, I haven't. No. So, bas- so basically, you had you had two two German guys um, that went into a, a branch of Deutsche Bank in, I think it was Munich, uh, and took two hostages. And then what you have is basically. It's almost a doc. I mean, it happened in real life. And what, what effectively transpired was this is an object lesson in how not to handle a siege by, by the German police. Uh, so just suffice to say, whatever could go wrong did go wrong. Wow. Utterly, unbe- utterly unbelievable. Oh, Completely wait. gripping. Can't wait Completely to see gripping. it. That's fantastic, Tim. Thank you. Because that reminds me a little bit of the evil genius that was on Netflix, which was totally amazing. Um, but it sounds like it's in a very similar vein. The, the Evil Genius was um, the, the episode about, or the series about a, uh, a hostage who was who walked into a a bank in America with a bomb around his neck. And oh, I've seen yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very harrowing. Um, yeah, I don't, I'm not going to say any more about it. But yeah, yeah Gladbeck hostage crisis. I'm definitely going to check that out. Patrick, what 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 have you got for us? Oh. Actually, for a little bit of rollicking rub, I just watched the Netflix Outlaw King with Chris Pine because that was actually quite sort of um, easy to digest. And actually, what I am looking forward to seeing is is I really want to go and see uh, The Widows, the new movie. Yes, it looks uh, good. You know, based on you know the old ITV series, which was always I, which I remember watching uh, many years ago, um, and I think it's. Uh, 
It looks interesting. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, I'm not a I, periodic cinema goer, so it takes something to really pique my interest. And I, I, I sort of, uh, it appeals to me because it challenges the, the, the norm. It challenges, it challenges the standard. Um, okay, maybe we can all go argue in, in a, you know, these days it's probably a little bit too trendy, but um, giving everything else that's going on. But no, I'm quite looking forward to seeing that. Yeah, that looks that looks really good. So the Outlaw King on Netflix, you you really enjoyed that? You're saying? Yeah, it's just yeah. a bit of yeah. It's quite it's quite you know it's it's about Robert the Bruce, um, which for someone who's in, in, generally in, loves taking the mick out of our Sassanac of our sorry not Sassanac out of our Scottish friends, um, actually. No, it's right. I found it very enjoyable. Brilliant. Well, my one is uh, I actually, Tim. You were talking about three billboards. I, I when I saw that at the cinema, I was like, absolutely loved it. I, I quite like the ending of it actually, but I'm, we, we obviously can't discuss it otherwise we're going to spoil it. So we'll let the listeners uh, decide for themselves. But I, I, I know what you mean though. I know it's 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 like one of those slightly unfinished you know leaves it for you to decide and you either like but i also you... i also just found it morally morally un unsatisfying aha uh-huh. okay but some people love that and some some people don't i guess it depends where you're from but i i well, they're, they're just wrong they're just wrong they're just that. wrong aren't that's, they that's tim yeah absolutely. <laughs> but uh my one is nocturnal animals which i wanted to see for quite some time then forgot about and then it's now trending on netflix uh after I loved it. I think it's a great film. Tim, you're going to love it because it's got... Um... What is it? Is it like hedgehogs, badgers? Yeah, 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 basically. No, what it is is um, Amy Adams plays a uh, she plays a gallery owner uh, in, in, the, in, in America. And, and the opening credits, I would just completely sort of go past. They're very strange, not indicative of the film. So Amy Adams um, is... Uh, on her second husband so she divorced her first husband because he was a writer and his prospects weren't very good so she marries this very good looking very rich uh man who's clearly not being faithful to her she then receives a book in the post from her ex-husband and it's called Nocturnal Animals. And he always referred to her as a nocturnal animal. And she's reading this book. And as she's reading the book, the story of what's in the book is unfolding. So it's a story within a story, which is really clever. Uh-huh. And I really liked I really liked it. I thought it was great. It was, you know, good acting, great story, um, slightly harrowing in places, but uh, beautifully shot. But Michael Shannon, who I know you're a fan of, so I thought I'm oh, a huge I, Michael Shannon. Yeah, fan. so huge, you'll love it. Huge fan. I, ho- I, I hope Excellent. you like it. Yeah, I'd ho- you know, obviously I hope Patrick likes it, but I know you like Michael Shannon. He does uh, does feature in it, so I thought it's a clever film as well. So I was glad to pick that up. So, so yeah, look, so thank you so much, Patrick. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for all your words of wisdom, and hopefully we'll have you back on the show um, when we get an update, maybe in the new year and we see where the economy is going if 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 there is a new year (laughs) (laughs) thank you so obviously for tim as always and uh that was was absolutely absolutely superb patrick really enjoyed it thank you cheers thanks a lot just want to say a very big thank you to our twitter followers and all our new subscribers uh hamish capital all the way in Kamloops. That's just fantastic in Canada. 
And I just want to say a big thank you also to Ryan Thomas and to Stevie G and Millionaire Mental. As always, really appreciate all your support and everybody else who's following us and liking us on iTunes and all the other podcast providers. We really do appreciate your support and uh, we look forward to coming back to you soon. So thank you and uh, have a great couple of weeks and we'll see you soon. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.